trolling, trolling for ten baggers. Trolling, trolling for ten baggers. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You're here with Joel and Sam. We're here to talk about finding 10 baggers. That's a stock that's gone up 10 times. There isn't much out there about how you find a 10 bagger, so we chat to people who've found them before. In the show, we talk to all sorts of guests about all sorts of different things, but just remember that nothing included is advice. Make sure to speak with a professional advisor about your own circumstances before making any financial or investment decisions. Hi, and thanks for tuning in. We know it's been a bit of a long time between episodes, so thanks for staying subscribed and for the feedback for those who got in touch with us. Today we've got an episode about the mechanics of the market, and it's quite topical given the enormous number of capital raises, corporate activity, and just general goings-on in small cap land over the last little while. So straight over to you, Sam, and let's get on with the show. All right, thank you, listeners, for joining in. We've got a special guest today uh, from a corporate lawyer perspective. Um, this guest uh, advises clients in capital markets. Um, we have with us Toby Hicks from Steiner Price Paganin. Thanks for jumping on the show, Toby. Thanks for having me, gents. It's uh, good to be here. Brilliant. Well, Toby, do you want to start with what got you into what you're doing now um, and finance? How long's your podcast? Um Look, you know, I think I grew up in a, I grew up in Western Australia in, you know, amongst uh, people who were involved in in public companies, and so uh, always had that sort of interest. And, and law school was always an interest of mine, and I could never see myself being a criminal lawyer or a family lawyer. So it was always a, a, almost a natural direction for me to end up with, and and I've been fortunate, I think, in my practice to to be involved in a law firm that from an Australian context is, is one of the most active sort of advisory firms in the space. So it, it, it sort of fed into that, that interest quite well. And maybe Toby, if you can just give us a bit of an overview about um, what your firm, where you're working now and what the sort of nature of the work that you carry out is. Yeah. So Steiner Price Paganin is a, is a corporate law firm and we have offices in Perth, which is the, the foundation office. And we now have an office in Melbourne. But we are involved in advising clients Australia-wide and internationally on um, compliance requirements with uh, Australian capital markets. So in relation to transactions like IPOs on the ASX and the other exchanges in Australia, um, secondary capital raisings that your listeners would be used to like placements and rights issues and share purchase plans, general compliance matters like um, you know, shareholder meetings and then commercial transactions, you know, we're, we're very, very active uh, in that space Australia-wide. Fantastic. Yeah, because we certainly want to discuss some of that, the different types of capital raises and, you know, different trans- transactions that companies go about. And I suppose just to um, go into your background as well, you're also involved in a listed company eh, with a, in a professional role as well? Uh, I am. It's not something I, I do as a core part of my business, but I do sit on the board of, of an ASX listed company currently, um, which has been good because it provides a, a, a good context into the advice that I, I provide to the clients on, on matters um, when I'm asked to provide advice on, you know, particularly in relation to director issues and, and board issues. I think sitting in, a, sitting in the chair and actually 
understanding it from the client's point of view is very helpful. Yeah, cool. And I suppose with the big overriding caveat that nothing we talk about today is legal or financial advice, we do want to discuss some of the various types of um, raises undertaken by listed companies. So maybe to start, if you could run us through the different ways that companies can raise capital in the listed markets, and then we might dig into some of the nuances and the reasons that certain ones might be chosen over others in different circumstances. Yeah, so obviously the method for listing on an, on a public exchange, primarily for, I guess, this discussion, the ASX, is, a, is an IPO, which you'd be familiar with and listeners would be familiar with seeing those prospectuses. Once listed, the capital raising options change. Um, you have things like placements and a placement is a is a issue of shares to a group of selected um uh, uh, investors, you have a rights issue. A rights issue is is a pro rata offer to existing shareholders, um, primarily based on their existing holding. They get a, a right to subscribe for new shares at a price, and and a share purchase plan, which again is it's an offer to existing shareholders, but it's not pro rata. It's based on a set limit. Um, that, that shareholders can apply for and um, companies have the right to sort of set how much they seek to raise in something like an SPP. Yeah, cool. And I think that's, um, that's interesting because you sort of mentioned that's the three or four sort of main or three primary ways. Um, would you be able to, I guess something we're keen to explain is maybe why companies might choose a particular method of raising funds and with your background, obviously, working for, you know, with a listed company as well and, and with the day-to-day work you do, I guess you'd see both parts of that. But yeah, there's sort of key reasons that companies will carry out different raises and different types. Maybe if you could run through some of the, obviously every case is different, but some of the sort of main considerations that companies might make. Yeah, I, I, it's, a, it's an interesting one, Joel. I think as companies come to us, there are often reasons for raising money and those reasons are need, um, as in we need money. And if we need money, it's often we need money quickly or opportunity and and what the reason for tends to guide what parties will do or companies will do. So the quickest way of raising money is a placement um, because it enables the company to approach a broker, um, quite quickly identify investors that they can make offers to invest uh, without needing substantive disclosure documents like a prospectus and in in this context we're talking about what your listeners might see referred to as sophisticated or professional investors Um, and and so a placement to sophisticated investors can be done very very quickly and cheaply from a compliance perspective Um, a share purchase plan Similarly, can be done relatively cheaply because the documentation isn't onerous, but there's a lot, you know, you often, you have to have your share purchase plan offer open for a period of time. So therefore, the time to get the money that the company is looking to raise is extended from what it would be under a placement. And a rights issue, similarly, there's a time lag between when you, announce your rights issue and when the company gets the funds. The, the flip side is if you want to keep your existing shareholders happy, a rights issue 
is the fairest way of raising money because it it is pro rata. A shareholder who who takes up their rights under a rights issue would maintain their same interest at least in the company. An SPP is is um, something where whereby you know share, shareholders all get to apply for the same amount of of new shares. So potentially, if the maximum is thirty thousand dollars, someone can apply for under a share purchase plan. If I own a hundred shares, or if I own a million shares, I can still only apply for thirty thousand dollars worth of shares under that share purchase plan. A placement is often seen as uh, often seen by shareholders, I should say, as potentially being the most unfair way of raising money because maybe only select shareholders or no shareholders get invited to participate in that capital raising. But I go back to my first point, which is it's also the quickest way of raising money where a company may need to do so. Toby, that's fantastic. Um, You've clearly articulated that very simply. And we've had a guest before talking about different types of capital raising. So just to have that for any new listeners in this market is very valuable. Thank you. A couple of questions that emerged from me listening to that I was really keen to hear your thoughts on. You mentioned that, um, you know, rights issues, entitlements are often the fairest ways for people to get access. But one of the bugbears I've always found is that any time a rights issue or entitlement offer is announced, the record date is always after the announcement. So it means anybody that wasn't a holder could potentially buy uh, and get on the register. So I, I wonder, I'd always wondered if there was a right or an entitlement that is ever backdated as a record date. Is that a legal thing that can be done? And I guess your thoughts on, on that fairness question that I've thrown at you. Yeah, so just to... The timetable for a rights issue is specified in the ASX listing rules, right? So um, there is a fairly rigid um, time frame and set of steps that need to be complied with for a timetable for a rights issue. So that the record date is always, um, I think it's, plus two or plus three days after the um, announcement. So it does enable people to acquire shares on market and be and be registered as a shareholder on the X date um, and participate in the um, participate in the rights issue. I think I don't necessarily see that as as a um, as an unfairness, if you like, because there is no there is no obligation on people to sell or um, if they, you know, do want to participate in the rights issue. Contrary, with an SPP, the ASX listing rules dictate that the record date for an SPP is always the day before you announce the SPP. So that might get to, might get to your point, Sam. Okay, it's terrific. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to come back to another question about the timing because sometimes you'll see these rights issues that can be done, you know, inside a week. And I suppose you can talk about the accelerated offers as well, but is that why you'll always see the SPPs running for a couple of weeks? Because that's, that's again, back to the listing rules. Uh, Yeah, there's no, 
there's no minimum time period for running a share purchase plan. There is for running a, a rights issue. Um, an accelerated rights issue is effectively a, a two, in its simplest form, is a, is a, a two-stage capital raising. And effect, basically what you do is all your institutional shareholders get a chance to take up their rights and provide their, their cash for their interests immediately. And then the retail portion of the rights issue continues upon a, a standardised ASX timeframe. So that enables the, the institutional holders to, to contribute cash to the company in an immediate sense. And then the retail offer um, to flow after that, noting that, you know, uh, rights issue offer documents or prospectuses need to be hosted to all shareholders. They need to have time to consider them, fill out their check or, or make their online transfer. Thanks, Toby. I guess a lot of listeners will probably want to ask um, the difference between renounceable and non-renounceable and maybe tradable as well. Sure, sure. Renounceable basically means that your right to subscribe for new shares can be on-sold on the ASX. So when a company announces a, a renounceable rights issue, the ASX effectively creates a new market for those rights. And assuming there is someone who wants to buy your right to acquire those new shares, you can sell that right on market for whatever the, the market deems a fair price. A non-renounceable rights issue means you cannot sell that right. Yeah, okay. And so if they're not taken up, they just sort of lapse, do they? And they're forfeited, basically. So so what, yeah, Joel, what happens with a, with a, what we'd call the shortfall is it any any rights not taken up in a non-renounceable rights issue become known as the shortfall and various companies, depending on their size and depending on the arrangements they've entered into, may deal that deal with that shortfall differently. Sometimes they may have entered into an underwriting agreement and they might place those shares to that underwriter. They may um, invite existing shareholders to apply for more shares than their entitlement and those shares would come from that shortfall pool of shares um, or they may choose not to, to do anything with them at all. Fantastic. Um, just a bit more of maybe a technical question, but some rights issues and different raises seem to have a full, like a really long multi-page prospectus and others have much shorter documentation. Is there a difference between the prospectuses and the paperwork required for them? And a, sort of a follow-on from that is, can you help people understand why sometimes they might see a prospectus that's raising $100 or some really token small amount of money? Uh, I, I can. Um, I can answer the question, Joel. I can't answer it in a concise fashion, perhaps. <laughs> um, the, the, look, the reason that you would see an offer document or a prospectus for a rights issue can be for a number of reasons. One is that there is an avenue in the Corporations Act enabling a company to do an offer document, which will be shorter than a prospectus. But that avenue is only open to companies primarily where you haven't been suspended from trading for more than five days over the 12 months before you lodge that offer document. 
So particularly for smaller companies that may have cause to be suspended from trading, and that can be for a number of reasons, and they're not always negative. But if you've once you've been suspended for more than five days in a 12-month period, you cannot issue either a what you'd see called a cleansing notice or a short-form rights issue document. So the reason you see a prospectus lodged online for $100, and you might see it sometimes entitled as a cleansing prospectus, is that is a document that the companies must lodge to ensure that any shares issued that were issued without a prospectus can actually be on-sold once they are issued. Okay, so yeah, so if, if they've sort of um, adhered to the criteria or they meet the criteria initially, then they're able to issue shares with perhaps a slightly lower burden, is it, in terms of the paperwork, but once that passes, then they've got to go through the whole motions and basically do a full prospectus to, to issue new ones. Correct. The, the premise behind it is that any person buying a share that is tradable on a public exchange must have all information about the company relating to that share. So what a cleansing notice says is that someone buying a share in that company, at the time they buy that share, they have all relevant information available to them to make a decision to buy that share because the company is fully compliant with its continuous disclosure. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I've seen from time to time as well um, companies, I think, that had either not not released or had delayed releasing of certain other reports that they had to do and then they were unable to, I think, raise money on this for the same reason. So that sort of goes to what you said, I suppose. If they haven't disclosed the financial position or one of the other things that they need to, then they're not able to issue new shares, basically, without catching up to date. Correct. correct. And it's, an, it's actually a really important compliance part um, for companies to follow because the rectification process for companies that fail to lodge those cleansing notices or ensure that those shares can be on sold is actually quite laborious and it's quite expensive because it requires an order of a court to, to rectify that issue. Brilliant, Toby. Um, I just had another technical question myself um, with with your announceable, sorry, with your entitlement rights issue documents and a full prospectus. Sometimes you'll see a prospectus where all the shares that are issued, so that is shareholder rights plus shareholder rights not taken up and shortfall are issued at once. And then you'll also see prospectuses where you'll have the retail entitlement shares um, being issued and then you'll see an a calendar or a, a date saying, you know, shortfall must be placed within this time. Is Are there any regulations or nuances to, as to why there's some differences in that? Yeah, that arises under the listing rules, which provide that, that a, company can, a company can issue shortfall under a rights issue within a period of three months after the closing of the rights issue. So, so... Sometimes that shortfall will be issued immediately. Sometimes um, companies will find investors willing to take up that shortfall over that three-month period. Effectively, what it means is the prospectus remains open um, for that period of time, 
and you know for that three month period until that shortfall is is issued, or the company cho chooses to close the offer, the shortfall offer that is. Fantastic. Now that's a really good explainer. Thanks. And we might be sort of covering going back a little bit, but um, we're always keen on the show to sort of try and help people understand sort of private investors as well. Some of the the way things work so that they can make the best, you know, best decisions they're able to and take advantage of the situations they're presented with. Are there any things that you think are worth, people were worth considering where they might have a bit of an advantage over maybe larger investors or funds or professional investors due to the way those things work? We talked about the SPP being dated usually in the past and rights issues in the future. But I guess my question is, is there, is there anything else that you think um, smaller shareholders and investors probably want to be aware of and how they might, that they might not and how they might use that to their advantage? Oh, look, I think every investor's circumstances are different, to be honest. Um, some investors obviously have, have uh, things that they are interested in, be them resources or technology or things like that. But, but I think anything just comes down to research and understanding. I, I, don't, I don't think there's anything that I could suggest puts a smaller investor at an at a advantage to a, to a sort of a, a larger group if for no other reason than then those larger groups often have much bigger resources uh, aim, aimed at um, ensuring they've got all information they need to know before they make their investments. It's it, it, very much fully informing yourself is the is the best best thing you can do as an investor. All right, thanks. So um, we might move on to a bit of a different topic, I suppose, and that's something which we're keen to, which can also have a lot of paperwork involved as well and can be a bit confusing perhaps to investors and shareholders is the way um, sort of annual or meetings of any type and voting and polls happens. I wondered if you'd be able to sort of talk us through a bit of an overview of what the reason companies might have meetings, whether it's an annual or an a extraordinary meeting and the, the process involved in the resolutions and how they need to get voted on and decided. Yeah, sure. It's, a, it's an apt time to talk about it. We're, we're smack bang in the middle of um, of the busiest time of year in our office, uh, because we tend to produce about uh, anywhere between 150 to 250 notices of annual general meeting for clients over the month of October. So, and the reason for that is, um, albeit it's slightly different this year because of COVID, um, most companies in Australia, most companies have a 30 June. Uh, end of financial year. Uh, the Corporations Act specifies that companies need to have their annual general meeting within five months of the end of their financial year, which means companies typically have to have their annual general meeting by the end of November. You need to give 28 days clear notice to shareholders of the date and time and location of the meeting. So that effectively means you've got to have sent that notice out by the end of October if you were to have your meeting on the last day of November. And all those notices of meeting need to be reviewed by the ASX and possibly also the ASRC before they go out. So it is a, a long process for companies planning their annual general meeting. The companies like... West Farmers, the banks, BHPs of, of the market, annual general meeting planning, I think, probably happens 12 months in advance. For smaller companies, 
um, particularly at the smaller end of the market, um, annual general meeting dates can be quite flexible right up until the point where they actually get their notice of meeting out to shareholders. So the, 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 the process for convening a meeting and, the, and the, the process for drafting what shareholders read in their notice of meeting is actually fairly detailed depending on the resolutions that are being considered. The reason companies have meetings, an annual general meeting is a statutory requirement because it's the meeting at which each public company is required to put before its shareholders um, their accounts for the year. Um, but the other reasons companies have, have meetings are because there are certain things directors can do and certain things directors can't do without shareholder approval. Um, and so you will often see resolutions for the issuing of shares, resolutions for the of issuing of any type of security to a director requires shareholder approval. Um, and so all these things become reasons why companies hold either extraordinary general meetings um, or bundle them all up in their annual general meeting. Yeah, okay. And so that's the notice of meeting document that's lodged the ASX, isn't it, that usually has the resolutions in there and then a whole lot of detail about each of the things that are going to be voted, put to vote, basically. Correct. And my part of my job is to ensure that the, the information at the back of the, of the resolutions, which is called the explanatory statement, has both the information that the regulators require but also is in a form that shareholders can understand. I, I don't think there's much point in drafting an explanatory statement for a shareholder to consider voting on a resolution if at the end of it they can't work out what they're voting on. That's a good point, Toby, because I've seen some absolute shockers, you know, some really lengthy notes and meeting nom docs and even explanatory statements where I find myself often confused. So um, I guess this comes into that broader point about people and how many people actually voting at AGMs? I mean, do you have a view or any sort of statistics that sort of come to your mind or, or anything like that? I've seen statistics put out by some of the share registries who, you know, have a very intimate role in the planning and management of shareholder meetings that shows that the participation of shareholders in annual general meetings generally continues to fall year upon year. And I think it's reflective of a view that a lot of smaller shareholders don't necessarily feel that their vote means anything because there may be larger shareholders. In the instances of some of the bigger companies on the ASX, funds and, and large investment groups, and in smaller companies, you might have major shareholders that hold effectively a, a blocking stake, if you describe it that way. Um, so you're seeing annual general meetings where, where really votes relating to the company are passed on a very, very small percentage of actual votes on issue, shares on issue, I should say. And I've been at annual general meetings where there's been one shareholder in the room. Um, but you see, you know, you do see footage of, of, some of the bigger companies, their annual general meeting has has hundreds in the room. Um, Just to go to a point that you oh, sorry, mentioned, Toby, um, in terms of what's required to actually pass a 
like pass a resolution. So it's a percentage of the number of votes cast. Is it not a percentage of the total potential voters? Yeah, so under law, there's two ways of, of holding a vote. One is on a show of hands done in, done in the room and every hand has, has one vote. Um, and the other way is, is conducting a poll. Now, a poll is done every, on a poll, every uh, shareholder's vote is equal to the number of shares they hold. And if they are appointed a proxy for another shareholder, it would include those shares as well. So the, the, the vast majority of resolutions are passed on simple majority of votes counted. So if, if um, five shareholders are in the room and the, and the vote is conducted on a show of hands, the vote might be three to two. But if there's five shareholders in the room and a number of proxies lodged representing 100 million shares and the vote is done on a poll, then the vote might be 750 million shares, sorry, 75 million shares to 25 million shares, if you, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. So what I would add... What, so what I would add to that is that is that under new corporate governance guidelines that are now in effect, ASX recommends that all companies should conduct all their votes on a poll. And to be frank, I think that's a, my personal view is that, is that that's a good way to go. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, Toby, because that was going to be a question I had in the back of my mind. Um, one other thing I want to ask, and there's different types of resolutions, isn't there? There's general and special. Do you want to just quickly outline those differences? Yeah, so there, a, a general resolution is a, is a simple majority. So 51% um, of the votes in favour passes the resolution. A special resolution requires a higher voting threshold of 75% of the votes um, being cast in favour of that resolution. Now, th those sorts of resolutions typically relate to changes to the constitution of a company or changes to the name of a company, and there might be other limited circumstances. The other resolution that people would see at an annual general meeting is a non-binding resolution relating to remuneration reports. Now, the threshold to pass that resolution or the threshold to approve the remuneration report for a public company is 75% of the votes cast, but the resolution is also non-binding, which means it, 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 it doesn't have any immediate effect on the remuneration report, although in recent years we've seen the development of, of the two-strike system where if, if companies' remuneration reports get voted down two years in a row, shareholders have the right to vote to remove all the directors other than the managing director and elect a new board. Yeah, brilliant. Again, very concise um, explanations there, Toby. I feel like we could go down rabbit holes. One last question, um, and I'm, I wonder if it, I'm sure some listeners will have asked this. Key management personnel can't actually vote on issue of shares or any benefit that's related to them, isn't it? It's a court of voting exclusion. There are voting exclusions that apply to, to certain resolutions on that remuneration report um, in an, at an annual general meeting. Um, key management are, are prohibited from voting completely. Uh, in relation to other resolutions that see 
an issue of shares or a financial benefit being given to a specific director, um, then that director and their associates, and that's a that's a defined term under the law, um, are restricted from voting. And that's, you know, that's a great summary, I think, of the, um, like certainly the amount of paperwork and things that, it, that investors and shareholders receive. And sometimes I think there's a bit of confusion as to what it all means and why it happens. So that's fantastic. Um, that's, I guess, the, the stuff that we were keen to cover off in terms of the raising and the, the um, AGM process. Was there anything else, Toby, that you sort of see behind the scenes that you think, oh, I wish shareholders understood this more because you sort of get a, a view that people don't understand it or would, be, would do better if they understood? <laughs> Oh, look, you know, I think it's, you know, managing public companies and, and being involved in public companies is, is not as glamorous, I think, as some people would make it out to be or believe it to be. And um, it does require a fair degree of, of responsibility and, and commitment. And I, I often, you often see criticisms of directors or criticisms of decisions that boards make and and sometimes you wish shareholders could see what goes on in the background to those decisions not to say that every director whoever has managed a public company has always acted in um, in complete good faith but I think a large portion do I think a lot of the a lot of the belief in in the way that people manage companies is probably being shaken by things like the, the Banking Royal Commission and some of the other stories you hear about um, things that people do, do wrong when managing companies. But I think a, a large number of directors that I've ever dealt with are trying to do the right thing, but, but it's easy for people to jump on chat sites or, or to make assumptions about why people are doing things or not doing things. Um, so you know, as a not as a lawyer, but as someone who who watches the space, you you do sometimes wish that 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 people could see what goes on in the background, if you know what I mean. That's a brilliant point. Um, on that, Toby, um, you said as someone who's an avid watcher, um, you know, a prerequisite of being on this show is to uh, identify a ten bagger. Now, note that we are late twenty twenty, and there's been many many ten baggers. So you've got everything to lose and nothing to gain by doing it and disclaimer here no no legal advice no financial advice but um geez if you had a dart to throw at the dartboard do you, do you have a little 10 bagger that you you like the look of <laughs> i think anything anything that has anything to do with western australian gold at the moment seems to be um seems to be a fairly safe bet um and probably being a legal advisor to a number of companies on the ASX, it'd be inappropriate for me to recommend one. But um, certainly, uh, it it is it is a very very active space at the moment. And having recently um, completed the Diggers and Dealers Mining Conference over here in Western Australia, in the little Republic of Western Australia, no one else is allowed in, no one else is allowed out. Um, the, there is a great sense of, of belief in the West Australian mining industry here at the moment. So there are, there are still plenty of opportunities in, in companies uh, based over here, I, I think. Brilliant, brilliant answer. Long WA, long gold, um, and a very good legal lawyer answer response, <laughs> I'd expect. Um, but also on, a, on another note, very sad uh, that uh, we couldn't get over to the years again this, this year. But um, 
Brilliant, Toby. This has been a really fascinating and interesting explanation. And I know many listeners will have really gotten so much from this. So thank you again for your time and for jumping on the pod. No, look, my pleasure, gentlemen. And, um, and certainly when these borders open, look forward to um, a chance to welcome you back, uh, back over here. And uh, never a dull moment in Kalgoorlie. I'll give you the big tip. Thanks so much as well. Just to echo that. And I really appreciate your time, Toby. No worries. Thanks, gentlemen. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of this show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.